You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, brought to you by Federal Premium Ammunition. Now, Federal has come out with a new turkey load called the Heavyweight TSS, or the Heavyweight Tungsten Supershot. Now, this is a tungsten alloy material, and it's 18 grams per cubic centimeter density now what this means is it is it's 22 percent higher than standard tungsten and 56 percent higher than lead so it is a a very dense material and it has the ability to travel at high velocities and continue that velocity at longer distances it has deadly patterning and it also has something called flight control flex and that is when that rear braking wad performs flawlessly through ported and standard turkey chokes so if you want to find out more information about the heavyweight tungsten super shot visit federalpremium.com and while you're there don't forget to check out their podcast and their blogs tons of great content What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Hunting Gear Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Johnson, and today we're going to be talking with Greg Farrell from First Light about their entire lineup. And the best part about this uh, podcast, this conversation, is we're going to talk about company history, right? He joined the company when he was the seventh person, right? He was number seven. He was one of seven people. And now, as we've all seen First Light kind of blow up and expand, uh, he's been able to see and witness a lot of that growth and uh, industry changes, garment changes, uh, material changes, and that's what we talk about today. We talk about the benefits of merino wool. We talk about how they have how they've expanded their product line. We talk about First Light, the brand. We talk about, um, I guess you would call it, uh, com- company culture, and uh, it's just a really interesting conversation about the brand First Light and the products that they make, the process of creating a garment or a product, the testing that's involved with all of it. So uh, it's uh, it's a really awesome podcast about uh, what I would consider a premium brand and the steps to getting to call yourself, I guess, a premium brand, right? That, that, that process. 
So hopefully you guys enjoy it. Uh, be sure that you are downloading this. Be sure that you are subscribing to the Hunting Gear Podcast and, and all of the other podcasts on the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network. And uh, I think no more talk. Let's get right into today's episode. In three, two, one. All right. Today I am on the phone with Greg Farrell. Is that correct? Greg Farrell? Correct. Yep. Hey, man. The, it's always a good day when I don't slaughter someone's name. So this is going to be a good podcast now that we've kicked it off on the right foot. We're off to a good start. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Greg, you work for First Light. Uh, so these days, what do you call these companies? Because back in the day, I used to call, let's say, a Realtree or Mossy Oak. I used to call them a camo company. But since I started buying my gear, you know, I, I've kind of switched from buying my gear at Walmart to more, I guess, uh, uh, custom gear, which means it's better for a hardcore hunter like myself. What's the correct terminology? Is it still camo or is it something else? You know, we, I mean, we're not too picky. We, we definitely call it technical hunting outerwear. Um, we like in the kind of the connection to the more, you know, what, I would say before companies like us existed, um, people that built products like us were pretty much only in the outdoor space. Um, and as we've existed and progressed, you know, we like to believe we're pushing the boundaries in technical outerwear across all spaces, whether that be hunting or, you know, just outdoor use or outdoor rec. So yeah, we, we definitely go with the technical hunting outerwear as our uh, descriptor, I suppose. Gotcha. Okay. Now that we got that taken care of, I, at least I know <laughs> what to reference because I'd hate for someone who puts in, you know, it's not just a cotton t-shirt with a camel pattern on it, right? It's a little bit more uh, in depth than that. And I, you know, I'd hate to offend you guys by just calling it camo when it's not necessarily camo. You know what I mean? Well, you wouldn't be totally wrong. I mean, we've developed our own camo pattern, so really, I mean, either yeah, way, right. I wouldn't I wouldn't have to correct you. Okay. So you'd be good. All right, good to go. All right, Greg, what is your role at First Light? Yeah, um, I am the, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm the Whitetail Product Line Manager. Um, so I came on with First Light a um, little over four years ago now, and um, at that time, I was employee number seven, I believe. So oh, wow. as you can imagine, being that small, we all wore a whole bunch of hats. We had our job titles, but it was pretty much all hands on deck with whatever needed to be done. So I started, I was doing some customer service, some marketing, some sales, a um, little bit of everything there. Um, and then from there, I moved into the product department. And my title for the next few years after that was product operations um, so really bridging the gap between product development, which I did maybe 50% of my time, um, and then the operation. So materials sourcing, um, things of the like there. And then most recently, um, as I am a Wisconsin native and grew up cutting my teeth on whitetails, um, that's kind of always been my passion. Um, came into a love for Western hunting a little bit later in life, but definitely it's whitetails are top of the list for me. So um, that being the case, as we've grown um, both as a company and within our line and the products we offer, um, really 
my passion being whitetails, it was a perfect fit to kind of take over and start managing that line. So that's where I'm at now. I gotcha. I gotcha. All right. So how has the company changed? Uh, I know this is kind of a high level question, but how has the company changed from you being the seventh employee to what it is today? You know, it's, that's a, it's a great question. When I came on, you know, early on, um, a big reason that I was interested in working for first light was because of the company culture. Um, you know, it's a office in a small ski town with tons of outdoor rec, you know, skiing in the winter, mountain biking and hiking in the summer, and obviously, you know, hunting in all of the fall. And the cool thing about where first Light's located is, you know, basically you go 15 minutes, any direction, you can be hunting elk and mule deer from the office, you know, half an hour, you're in the antelope in a different direction, you know, bears, there's moose, I mean, mountain goats, you name it, it's all right there. So the drive of what first light or the drive for me of what first light represented was this kind of Mecca for Western hunting. Um, but also it was the people that work there, you know, on any given day, there's more hunting dogs in the office than people. And <laughs> there's a gear room downstairs. we got a reloading bench and, you know, a garage where you'll find somebody's snow machine they're working on or dirt bike or whatever. And the, the really cool thing um, is as the company's grown, that really hasn't changed. Um, you know, and I give that all that credit to our previous owners and our current management where they have done a phenomenal job of maintaining that culture. Yeah. It's definitely a work hard, play hard, right? Like most of the year you're going to find us, you know, people that are getting there early and staying late, but we do that. So when the fall rolls around, we can take advantage of all those opportunities, um, hunting wise that we have and really not only just talk the talk, but walk the walk. Right. Yeah. Um, and we kind of pride ourselves on on doing that. We're not a bunch of desk jockeys. We're a bunch of hunters that have figured out a way to manage a desk job in the off season. That's right. So I have to give companies like what you're describing kudos because as, I mean, I've seen the hunting industry change in a way where we've gone from these mom and pop boutique type companies. They grow, they get established and then they get purchased by a bigger company. And then now you have this conglomerate of uh, basically a holding company that is one company, but it's seven or eight different brands under that umbrella, right? So, so for example, like Faradine and under that umbrella is Rage Broadheads and then several other companies, right? Um, so what, what I found out is it's not all the time, but some of the time you're talking to someone within a company that is not a participant in the activity that the product is designed for. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. So Absolutely. I, I feel there's a disconnect there. They can read off the stat sheets and they're really good at talking about it. But I've had an interview before where I said, Oh man, yeah, I love it when, you know, after, after this, you do this and they're just like, yeah, well, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't hunt. I just am this guy. I'm just like, Ugh. yeah, <laughs> like to me as a, as a consumer, that's almost a turnoff for for me so culture has a lot to do with a brand in in my opinion how do you guys maintain that when you know i mean you can't say to someone you have to hunt to work here but how do you guys maintain that culture to basically say okay this brand is run by participants of the sport you know i think honestly 
the majority of that credit goes to our founders. So our company was founded um, in 2007 by um, <clears throat> two local guys from Ketchum, where the company is. So Scott Robinson and Kenton Caruth um, started First Light. And largely what they did is they decided that by their own choice, um, they were going to limit the growth of the company so that they could maintain ownership. Um, and by that, I don't, I mean, actual ownership, correct, but also ownership of just how things were run. Right. And I think by doing that, um, it attracted a certain group of people that wanted to work with and for them. And those same people are still at the company today. And, you know, I think I really believe that like finds like, and as we got bigger, because of those people that, you know, were originally involved in starting this company and then growing this company, were still there and were, you know, essentially made up the leadership team. We just ended up attracting employees that were very similar and very like-minded. You know, I think the location has a bit to do with it too. Um, Ketchum is not necessarily an easy place to get to, you know, the, the largest airport um, is two and a half hours away. There is one in town, but it's fairly small and, you know, typically expensive, a little bit more expensive to get into. Um, and I think the fact that there's so much access around where we're headquartered that the people that want to live in a place like that are normally like-minded. Um, and if they're not, they typically don't choose to live in a place like that. So I think it's, it's the, it's a combination of all of those things. You know, I think another part of it too, is as we interview employees, you know, as we're growing, um, it's really important to us to have them to our office and to that location for that exact reason, because, you know, I think they pick up fairly quickly on what our culture is and whether that fits with them or not. And, you know, we pick up fairly quickly, um, as well, um, vice versa about them. So it seemed to just, you know, kind of evolve, uh, due to the foundation that was laid and we continue to grow on that. That's awesome. That's a good thing, man. All right. So I, I kind of want to go back. I understand that you were employee number seven. And what what year was it that you started working for First Light? Oh, let's see. It's 2020. So must have been 2016. 2016. Okay. Yeah. So let me ask you this then. As um, what do you know? I mean, you weren't there for day one, but what do you know about the, this idea, right? The original owners, what, what was the reasoning behind starting first light? You know, cause typically when you start yeah. a, when you start a new company, it's either, it's either I can do something better than that's already out there, or it's, I have a brand new idea, right? So what, yeah. what was the birth of first light? How did it get to where it started? So as I mentioned, um, Scott and Kenton, um, obviously both local Sun Valley Ketchum people, um, were big time into, they're big time hunters, but they're also big time into other outdoor pursuits. And really where the idea for First Light started was um, on one of their, you know, annual backcountry ski trips. And they're sitting around, uh, I think they're in a yurt, I believe. I don't know if it was a yurt or one of their ski cabins um, by the fire one night after, you know, day three of skiing and touring. Um, and they're realizing how and talking about how great Merino wool is. It's like, you know, we've been putting out hard efforts for how many days, 
on this trip and we've been doing it for the last how many years and we wear this amazing material. It doesn't smell. It regulates body temperature. Well, you know, all the things we love about Merino wool, but yet in the fall we're going off and essentially doing something very similar, um, but hunting and wearing these super cheap, crappy synthetics that after a half an hour of hiking, they stink. It's like, why is nobody in the hunting industry doing Merino wool? And that was really kind of what started the idea of what became first light for these guys. So they spent a number of years um, looking into this and, and really the reason it hadn't been done at that point was nobody had figured out how to print camo patterns onto Merino wool and maintain the properties like um, lack of smell, you know, it's antibacterial. So you don't stink. Um, it mitigates body temperature really well, both on high ends of the temperature range and low ends of the temperature range. It's quiet. X, Y, and Z. Um, what hadn't been figured out yet is how do you print a camel pattern on this material um, so that it still maintains those properties? And they were actually the first people to figure out how to do that. Um, so that was really the birth of First Light. And for the first couple of years, basically that's what First Light was. We were making base layers and mid layers um, out of merino wool, and we were the first company to be able to print on it. Um, outside of that, obviously, we've grown significantly since then. Um, into full, you know, mid-layer outerwear, rainwear, insulation layers, um, socks, X, Y, and Z. Um, but really that was, to, your, to answer your question, that was the aha moment and kind of what motivated them to go out and start this company. Gotcha. What was the problem with printing on Merino that no one could figure out? So to my understanding, I'm by no means a fabric printing expert, um, but to my understanding, the issue was different materials need to get printed um, at different temperatures. So most of these textile manufacturers and printers were very familiar with processes for printing on, say, poly or nylon or cottons. All of those things had been figured out, um, but what hadn't been figured out was the appropriate temperatures to print on merino um, and then there's also multiple different processes of how you can go about getting to a printed garment and then also figuring out which one of those um, processes within the different temperatures was most appropriate as well because um, i don't know if you've how familiar you are with merino but <clears throat> as you when you start looking at merino wool there's different qualities of merino and typically that's um, determined by the micron. It's basically the width of all the fibers. So the thinner the fiber is, the more expensive that wool is, but also the more comfortable it is. So that's the difference between like a high-end merino wool um, base layer and what some people think of as wools like grandpa's sweater, right? That itchy, heavy, um, not comfortable <clears throat> sweater. So really it was, it was a combination of all those things that hadn't been explored in the hunting space um, and therefore nobody's doing it with camo. And it took them a couple of years to figure out, but that was really their, their aha moment. Okay. So for me there, you know, I've worn a variety of Merino since Merino, I guess started becoming popular in the hunting industry and there is quality, which does does price reflect quality for the most part when we're talking about a base layer or, or Merino? hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, so basically, I mean, to take it all the way back to the sheep, right? When they're shearing the Merino sheep where they're getting this wool from, there's only certain amounts of these finer micron wool fibers that are coming off these sheep. Um, and those finer micron wool fibers, because 
<clears throat> they are in limited amounts and in, of limited uh, volume. Obviously, it's the supply and demand, right? As there's less of it and it's harder to get, the more it costs. So typically when you're looking at a, the difference between a, a high-end merino wool base layer and, say, like a mid-range one, um, you're going to be getting finer micron wool, which to your point, yes, is a, is a higher quality product. It's going to be more comfortable um, and it's going to perform better. Right. And it is the micron how it's processed and how it's produced into the garment or is there certain breeds of sheep that have different micron wool? So no, off of off of a merino sheep, you will get um, different as as they shear the sheep and process the wool. You'll you can get different micron wools from that specific sheep. Gotcha. And then depending on what it's being sold, like who it's being sold to, or what it's being used for, different industries and different companies will purchase different micron wools from these wool suppliers for their product based off its you know what it's going to be used for. Gotcha. Does itchiness have to do with the micron level because i've worn some 100 percent. okay all right so 100 yep, that means the if it's an itchy wool because i wore uh this year i had a guy send me a uh a uh, set of base layers and i could only wear it literally from the time i put it on to the time i got to my truck before i had to switch it out and put a different uh base layer on because it was so itchy so that means it's a it's a bigger micron Typically, that's a big part of it. There's uh, a million, and I shouldn't say million, there's a bunch of other factors that can go into um, how comfortable a wool garment is. But um, number one, or, you know, kind of typically the quality or the micron of the wool is going to play a large factor in that. Okay. All right. So when we're talking uh, about Merino, right, we, we've, we talked about how, um, why, why don't you just run through so everybody hears it straight from the horse's mouth what are the benefits of a merino base layer versus let's say a synthetic yeah absolutely um so first and foremost the merino sheep um really they're living in the temperature range and altitudes that we're trying to hunt in as well so what a lot of people don't understand is like how can how can this, this product, right, this miracle fabric, how can it keep you warm when it's cold out but also keep you cool when it's warm out? And a lot of that has to do with the fact that that's exactly what these sheep are living in. You know, in their hottest months, they're living at elevation in, you know, the 90s. And in these places they live in the coldest months, you know, it's down sub-freezing. So really the that natural fiber that these sheep are using to – navigate these conditions are what allow us as hunters who are using it um, as a base layer to do the same thing. So I would say, you know, one of the biggest benefits of merino wool is that it is temperature regulating. It's not just insulating um, and it's not just breathable, um, but it's doing both of those things so that regardless of what end of the spectrum you're on, um, it's going to be helping to regulate your body temperature. Got you. So that's one of the biggest benefits. Uh, it seems a little out there, but if you've ever worn Merino um, in both ends of the spectrum, you, you know, the first time I did, or when I first started, it was definitely, you have this aha moment where like, this doesn't make sense, but it's definitely doing its job. It's definitely working. Right. Um, so that's number one. Another, you know, huge benefit of Merino, especially in backcountry pursuits um, or in my world, you know, whitetail pursuits, uh, we could talk about it either way. 
But in terms of backcountry pursuits, you know, you're bringing in, you're trying to be weight conscious. So you want to bring in as few pieces of clothing as possible, but yet a lot of these backcountry pursuits, you are putting out really high output. So your body temperature is going up, you're starting to sweat, you get sweat on this piece, um, and then you're cooling down. And typically this, you know, as you perspire into a garment, um, what happens is bacteria is growing on that, in that humid environment or uh, that humid environment on the garment. And that's why something starts to stink. So merino wool is naturally antimicrobial. So what you'll notice is where a synthetic base layer, you know, maybe you get one day out of or two days max if it has some treatment on it before it starts to stink. Uh, most merino base layers, you know, you're looking at that five to seven days before you notice any odor on it. So that's another huge benefit of merino. Um, the fourth one that we know is super important um, in the hunting space is it's quiet. So as a fiber itself, as a natural fiber, uh, it's going to be more quiet than a synthetic fiber. So you don't have to worry about noise, which is huge. Um, and then the last one that we you know, find really important and like to educate our consumer on is the great thing about Merino is that it retains its ability to insulate um, even when wet. So if you're wearing a Merino garment and you fall on a creek or fall in the river, you know, whatever, even if you just get the thing super sweated up, when Merino is saturated, it still retains um, about 80% of its ability to insulate, whereas synthetic, when it gets wet, you essentially lose all of its ability to insulate. So those four things are kind of the, there's more than that, but those four things are kind of the top uh, most beneficial applications of Merino um, for us as hunters. Okay. So obviously uh, Merino's come a long way in the hunting space from when it was introduced to today. Talk a little bit about the durability, because when I first started talking to people about wearing Merino um, in a hunting capacity, all I heard was, well, yeah, it does it, but it's, it's pretty, it's not durable. That's what mm -hmm. I, that's what I heard. Talk to us about the durability of uh, Merino versus other base layers. For sure. Yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, obviously I don't like to just pick on Merino. I think it's more of a, um, it's a natural fiber versus synthetic fiber conversation. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you that they're comparable because at the end of the day, a synthetic fiber will always be more durable than a natural fiber. That's just the way it is. So Merino being a natural fiber, one of the downfalls um, of that can be durability. Um, <clears throat> what we've done, and a lot of that durability has to do with how thick the garment is. So as you can imagine, the thinner the garment gets, um, the less durable it's going to be because there's less make to it. So what we've done um, with our Merino line is in our thinner weight uh, pieces, so this would be our 150 weight pieces, um, as well as our 200 weight pieces, and we call these the 150 weight, we call our wick line. Um, so any of our products that are 150 weight Merino would fall under this, what we call wick. Um, that's the category name. Um, and then the fuse is the 200 weight. Um, so a little bit heavier grams per square inch, um, but obviously 50 grams per square inch heavier. What we've done with those two is we've actually blended um, both of those weights. So what you get there is kind of the benefits of, or the, um, yeah, the benefits of both worlds. So by blending it, and what I mean by that is we are blending the merino wool with a nylon fiber. Um, and what that allows us to do is to produce these lower weight pieces, 150 grams um, per square meter and 200, and 
still have these lightweight pieces but increase durability because as you add that synthetic fiber, nylon in our case, um, it's going to make the material itself inherently more durable. Another benefit there is, um, you know, some people will ask about how fast merino dries. So it's kind of the teeter-totter there. As I mentioned earlier, merino can maintain 80% of its ability to insulate when it's wet, um, but it doesn't dry quite as fast as synthetic. So by adding that synthetic nylon fiber into those lower weights, we're not only increasing the durability, um, but we're also allowing that piece to dry faster since those are typically um, warmer weather pieces and you're going to be um, perspiring more in those. So that's what we've done um, in our line to increase durability at those lower weights. Um, we've also done a similar thing in our obsidian pant. So we make um, a merino wool nylon, or excuse me, a merino wool nylon blend hunting pant. And the incredible thing about that pant is truly its ability to regulate body temperature. So that's the pant I'm wearing, you know, early season elk when it's still hot out and I'm crushing up the mountain. But it's also the pant I'm wearing, you know, probably into the end of October in a tree stand uh, because it insulates so well um, on the other end of the spectrum. So we, we kind of took the same path with that pant where the vast majority of that pant about 90% is still merino wool, kind of this miracle fiber. Um, but we've woven in a nylon ripstop within that fabric to increase durability, um, as well as added some strategically placed um, panels in there um, to increase durability as well. So that's the way we've kind of combated um, the problem. But yeah, you're right. Um, merino wool or any natural fiber, um, you're never going to get the same durability as a synthetic. Um, so we've just gotten creative with kind of how we've built those pieces um, to eliminate that problem. Okay. So in a past life, I was what you, what they call a process engineer, right? We had okay. to we yep. had we had to make a uh, a process for something to be as efficient as possible, right? And my my question to you is, what is the process like? How much of your process how much does your process actually play into the outcome the process of um, constructing the garment play is it just the the really good materials or is it the actual process or is it a combination of both that makes first light really good in your opinion i think it's definitely a combination of both i mean i think you i'm a firm believer that you can spend all the money and time in the world on designing you know, amazing garments, both in their construction, their articulation, um, the execution of trims and zippers and accessories, right? But if you build that that product that you spent, you know, whatever, choose your a million dollars in R&D and testing, you know, to come up with this garment, if you build it with a subpar material, you know, that garment is not going to perform the way it should. So I kind of look at it as a two-tiered system where, we want to start with our foundation being as strong as possible. And that's always been the design ethos at first light. It's not, it's never a, a cost conversation. It's what's the best material for the job and how, you know, how much it costs is how much it costs. And once we have that material, then it goes into that process of, you know, our full design testing, redesign, um, process to actually take that material and turn it into this garment that outperforms anything else on the market. So I think it's kind of both to answer your question. 
Gotcha. You, you just mentioned right there outperforms anything else on the market. There's a lot of companies, especially now. I mean, you guys are a direct to consumer company, correct? Yep, absolutely. Yep. All right. And if I'm sure you've noticed, I know I've noticed there are several, several uh, similar type companies. And what I mean by that is direct to consumer, um, technical hunting gear type companies coming up. Um, man, there's, there's so many of them in the past four years, right. That ha mm -hmm. are just, they're, they're popping up every, every six months. It seems like how, how do you guys judge that? How do you, how do you say that you outperform the competition? Do you guys do testing, uh, with competitive uh, gear? Yeah. So we do, um, I would say, again, that's kind of a multi-tiered approach. You know, one thing that we do um, with almost all of our textiles is when we go to, let's say we're building a garment that needs to be breathable, right? We'll do lab testing on not only a gamut of our own materials or materials that we're planning on sourcing, but also our, you know, our competitors as well. We want to know what their standards are and we want to know, you know, what we can do to improve upon what's already out there in the market. And I think a big part of our process there and has always been is, you know, we really pride ourselves on not being a me too company. And I think originally um, that may have even slowed, slowed our growth a bit because we were really committed to not just putting products in consumers' hands for the simple fact of like building new product every year. Um, one of the, we have a, we have a, a meeting every year where it's our big ideas meeting and we're just throwing ideas up, you know, basically on the whiteboard of what we want to do next or what, you know, what this, the product line two or three years from now, what we want to add. And one of the boxes that, you know, we've always prided ourselves on having to check is like, are we, solving a problem that exists in the market or are we coming out with something that hasn't been done? And if we're not doing one of those two things, it typically doesn't even make it to the next round of conversation about putting time and resources, money and money into building that product. So we're definitely very cognizant of what we bring to market and we don't bring to market things that are, you know, subpar both on a testing level um, in the lab, but even more important than that, we don't hunt in the lab we hunt out in the field, right? So regardless of what that lab data says, you know, we put all of our gear through vigorous in the field testing before that product ever hits a consumer's hand. Um, we really, it's important to us that our consumers are not our guinea pigs. We have, you know, our own, ourselves, uh, a group of testers um, that we utilize to make sure that that product has proved itself before it gets to gets to anybody else's hand that's purchasing it. Because, I mean, let's be honest, at the end of the day, not only our product, but some of these competitors that you talked about, that stuff's it's expensive gear, and we're well aware of that. Right. Um, and we want to make sure that when somebody spends their hard-earned money on a piece of first-light gear, it does everything, it exceeds their expectations. Right. Why don't you elaborate a little bit about the, from from the design to the actual time it's ready to be sold and the R and D and the testing that goes into a, a product line. I mean, you guys are uh, getting ready to launch your whitetail product product line, or you've already launched your product whitetail line. Uh, what, what is, what's that, that process look like as far as maybe design 
and engineering and testing and then taking it back from the testing and maybe redesigning it and saying, okay, it passed that test again, failed it, passed it, you know, and then all the way yep. up to the time it's uh, ready to be sold. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in a typical product cycle, and when I say typical, I mean, if everything goes according to plan, um, it's about a two year cycle and roughly we can break that down to, it's essentially a year of design. Um, and by that, I mean, you know, from that first time that that idea gets written up on the whiteboard, um, through, you know, however many rounds of design is necessary to actually get the product designed to where it needs to be. And then however many rounds of prototyping is necessary to get the product built the way it needs to be. Um, you know, typically that process runs about a year. Um, at that point we will have, you know, we would consider essentially a final prototype, um, final prototype and our eyes should be really, really close to what we're going to bring to market. I mean, as close as possible in a perfect world, it would be the product we bring to market. But basically once that final prototype um, is done or built, then we go into the field testing phase. So we've, at this point, we've already tested all of our materials in a lab. Um, and then we go to field testing and all of these products will get a minimum of one year. So one full year of testing in the field. Um, and what that does is it ensures that, you know, we've already checked the box of the lab test. We've already checked the box of, you know, in-house testing. And um, we do a various number of things in-house as well. And then does this thing actually perform? You know, does it do what we set out to do and what we're telling people it does? So if all of that goes well, it's had a year of design, lab testing, in-house testing. It has another full year of in-the-field testing. Um, and then we can make any minor changes needed um, in order to bring that product to market the following year. Um, if that doesn't go well, and what I mean by that is, you know, if we get into six months into field testing, we realize that there's something we need to change. Um, a lot of times what can happen then is we won't bring that product to market. If we can't make those, if we can't ex execute those changes in a given time that we have allotted, um, that product may have to get bumped to the following year. Um, but again, that's the commitment we have to our customers of it's not coming to market until it's checked all of those boxes it needs to. So the majority of the time, you know, we can adhere to that schedule and, you know, we have a process that's pretty dialed that allows us to um, make that to your schedule. But every once in a while there's an outlier that, you know, doesn't make it. And it sucks because at that point I put two years of my life into that thing. And a lot of other people have too, and you're bummed about it, but, it's just what we feel is right um, in terms of honoring our customers and giving them the best product we can. Right. Speaking of customers, how how do you guys receive customer feedback? I mean, has, has it ever gotten to the point where you've gotten the same customer feedback so many times that it's resulted in a product change? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So um, we kind of have a full, I don't know, I guess, feedback loop, we call it, um, that operates on a bunch of different levels. You know, first and foremost, we are, we read every review that comes onto our site and every review that comes onto our site, you know, eventually gets filtered down to trends. Um, you know, if there's reoccurring things, um, you know, outliers, whatever, those things get viewed and they eventually get filtered down to the people that build the product, which is hugely important. And there's been a number of products where those, just the reviews on the website alone have enacted product change. So that is not uncommon for us. 
Um, so that's a big way. Um, another huge way is if you ever call First Light, um, our customer service team, those are real people. So, you know, there's at any given day, five to six, uh, all guys at this point up there answering phones um, and every single one of them do our earlier conversation hunts. They're all hardcore outdoorsmen. Um, they all have, you know, some specialties. So, you know, if you're specifically calling in and you need to talk about a whitetail product, you know, they'll make sure you get to the whitetail guy. Um, X, Y, and Z, but those guys collect data every single day as well. Um, and they have a direct pipeline to provide that feedback to the product department um, and product development. And then I would say the last tier of that is our, we have a testing team. So we have kind of a few different levels of that, but we have hundreds and hundreds of guys and gals in the field every year um, that are required to basically use and abuse, try and break our products um, and provide feedback to us. So we're kind of getting it at all levels. Um, but yeah, we've had products that, uh, to answer your earlier question, customers have directly impacted uh, redesign of that product based off of what they've told us. Okay. How do you guys go about, I don't know, having this awesome idea, right? And you have this, like, I've had these ideas before, but then you put it, you start writing it down on paper and you're like, Oh my God, it, it may not be feasible to do, or it's going to take too long or whatever it's going to. And then you find out it's fail. It fails. How do you deal with that? How do you work with failure? And then I guess turning that into, into success from a product standpoint. That's a great question. Um, I would say, you know, we, it, I'm trying to think of the best way. It starts at that big ideas meeting, right? And at that big ideas meeting, um, you know, when the, all of the product line managers, when our director of product and design, when our designers, you know, everybody's there and we start throwing these ideas out, you know, these aren't just ideas that are coming off the cuff. At that point, all of our product line managers have gone through their specific lines. Um, we've figured out products that, you know, are long in the tooth. They've been around for a while that probably need updates. And that's based off of, you know, as technologies change, as we introduce new products into our own line that can complement um, these older products, um, they've evaluated all that. We also do a ton of evaluation on not only what's going on um, in the hunting space, but, you know, what's going on in the textiles world. You know, has a new textile been developed or created in the last year that could improve one of our products? So, We've vetted a lot of these new technologies before we even start throwing products on this long list. So I think that in itself um, helps eliminate a lot of those failures. Um, you know, we've also been doing this for 13 years now. So we've learned a lot of like what works and what doesn't, um, which helps eliminate some of those failures. But, you know, sometimes it just happens, right? Like we're trying to push the boundaries with every product we design. And when you're constantly trying to push the boundaries, um, they don't always work. And it's a tough pill to swallow because depending on when in the process you figure out it doesn't work, you know, that could be three months of work in, it could be six months of work in, it could be two years of work in. Um, and that, that's tough. Um, you devoted a lot of blood, sweat, and tears to this thing. But um, it's also, you know, you learn as much from something that doesn't work as you do from something that works. So what we try and do is take those failures or things that don't quite work um, and figure out how we can either understand from that failure better on, on new development 
Or, you know, if it was one part of that development that failed, you know, what do we need to do to fix that? And maybe that means that product doesn't come to market that year, but it comes to market the following year. It's even better than we expected it to be. So I think long and short, it's using those failures as motivation and also as just a tool for learning um, and growing as we try and push the boundaries on these products. Gotcha. All right. So this is another kind of high level question, but who is your customer? Like, how do you describe who is buying First Light? That's a great question. We, you know, interestingly enough, we have a, we have a really, really broad customer base. Um, And we're really proud of that. Um, You know, part of that's by design, but I think, I think our customer, if I had to (laughs) try and give you the shortest version of it, I think our for the first light customer is somebody who I spoke about our company culture earlier um, is somebody that would want to share a campfire, you know, or a cocktail or a beer, whatever coffee in the morning with the people that work at first light. Um, it's people that appreciate the culture we have um, appreciate both public and private lands and our access to them um, appreciate the ability to get out of doors and, you know, whether that's chasing ducks, whitetails, elk, you know, whatever it might be. Um, and also appreciate wanting to be able to push themselves. Um, and that's the, you know, I think a big thing when you get to people that are willing to spend the amount of money on gear, um, that's a first light or one of our competitors costs, you know, to your point earlier, you can go do this stuff in Walmart camo. I mean, that's not, that's never stopped anybody from, you know, going out and doing these things. But what we see the benefit of our product being is if you can stay out in the field, if you're comfortable, you're going to stay out in the field longer. If you're able to stay out in the field longer, you're inherently increasing your chances of success. And the type of people that buy our gear are motivated by that um, and committed to it. You know, a lot of them have maybe only a week or two weeks of vacation a year and you got to make it count. Um, so that's, that's really important to people that are our customer as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, one thing that really makes me happy is, uh, the sportsman's nation that holds, uh, I guess that holds this podcast, uh, in that, in that network, uh, is 2% for conservation certified and first light amongst others is 2% for conservation certified. So you can start to see the culture there it's not just about making a product but it is about also supporting the culture of people who buy that product and i think when when a company can give back like that man that just makes it more enticing for someone who's seriously hardcore to want to purchase that product yeah absolutely i mean and let's be honest right if those public lands don't exist our company doesn't exist yeah you know, so that's that's the selfish part of it is, you know, we realize that our customers that use and recreate or recreate on these lands, um, if we don't protect those, our customers go away. But, you know, for us, it's more than that. It's not just a business thing. You know, we realize how lucky we are to have these places um, to get outside. And it's important to us to make sure that other people have access to that um, as well as, you know, future generations. So it's 
it's definitely in the company culture. It, it runs in our blood. Um, and it's something since day one, we've been really committed to. And, um, you know, to kind of echo what you said through different partners, you know, like BHA, like 2%, um, any of our conservation, TRCP, Pheasants Forever, QDMA, you know, these partners that we have, um, those people are the boots on the ground to make sure that these places continue to exist. Um, and the way we can do that is we donate our time, you know, when we can, um, and we try and donate um, funds to them as well, which keep these these organizations running. So if you ever purchase something at firstlight.com, um, you have an option to round up for conservation, and you can round up your purchase amount however much you would like, um, and then you can choose one of those organizations, or if you don't affiliate with one, um, you know, we can choose it for you. So we try and do um, – encourage our customers to do the same, but then, you know, we're also, we're doing the same too by donating some of our own profits to those organizations and, and more importantly, donating our time when we can as well. Right. Okay. So this is kind of a two-part question. It's the same question. It's going to be asked a little bit different the second time, but the first question is, so there is a, a guy out there and he is thinking about you know, he's, it's time to either upgrade or it's time to, uh, you know, my old Merino or my old gears uh, worn out. I need to upgrade get, or get something new. Why should that person consider first light as an option? I think the reason that person should consider first light, um, is one, what we just talked about, you know, our commitment to the places that that customer likes to recreate. Um, but I think more importantly, it's, it's the design and development and ethos that I spoke to earlier where, you know, when you're buying a piece of first light gear, you can have confidence not only in, in the product that you're buying um, for its performance, but also a company that's going to stand behind it and, you know, wants to see you succeed and be happy as a customer. Um, we, take very seriously the gear we put into customers' hands. And if it's not something we wouldn't use or wear, um, we wouldn't expect you to purchase it from us. So I think it's pretty easy for, or we hope it's pretty easy for customers to have a ton of confidence in the money they're spending uh, on our gear. Okay. Now the second one is it's, it's similar, but there, there's a group of people out there, right? Uh, you know, it's the 80, 20 rule. Right where I feel like twenty percent of the um, the hunters out there spend eighty percent of the money. Right, twenty percent are probably buying the higher yep. end gear. Now let's say we're we're talking now to someone who has been that guy who has um, always is very price conscious, but he he wants to hunt hard and he 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 now recognizes that the gear or the clothing you wear, the boots. If you want quality and you want it to last longer and, you know, all these things, you may have to spend a little bit more money. But, you know, just like me and just like you, you know, budget and money is very important. So now we're talking to this guy. Why, if he wants to jump up and he wants to finally spend his hard-earned money on gear, similar to First Light, why is First Light his best option? I honestly, that customer, what I love to do, instead of me answering that question, um, I love to get them into a pair of our boxers 
and one of our base layers. Um, it's two very, you know, price conscious pieces. And I'm so confident that if I can get anybody who's trying to decide, you know, to move into say first light or one of our competitors gear, if I can get you to wear a pair of our boxers and one of our base layers, I won't need to say another word to you. That'll completely answer that question for you. Okay. Um, so I guess if I have to, if you're forcing me to answer it, it's performance, you know, and it, it's, we, our gear will help you perform better because you will be more comfortable. Um, therefore you will hunt harder. You will hunt longer and therefore you will be more successful. Um, but realistically it, it speaks for itself. And if I can, if I can get you into one or two of those pieces, um, that conversation will be over before it even started. I'm, I'm a hundred percent confident of that. Well, that's good. That's good that you're confident about the company that you work for. <laughs> um, so now I want to talk about, uh, the specific scenarios that we all hunt in every day. Right. Yeah. Um, you guys have, you know, start, you started out with uh, base layers and now you've kind of evolved to, you know, the, the insulation layers, the shells, the outer layers, all this, the rain gear, all this stuff. Um, so it's time to throw out some scenarios for you. Early season elk hunt. It is maybe a hunt from a truck every day. You kind of walk in and then you walk out. Um, what are we looking at there for uh, some gear that we need from First Light? Yeah, for sure. So um, we'll start um, bottoms up. So early season elk, I'm always wearing a pair of our 150 weight boxers next to skin. That's my base layer. Um, those are going to breathe super well, keep me comfortable, um, keep me dry. Uh, so that's my next scan. And then on the bottom, we kind of have two options for that scenario. One would be our corrugate guide pant, uh, which is a four way stretch nylon pant. Um, and then the other would be our obsidian pant, um, which is the merino wool pant that I spoke about earlier. Um, if you're somebody who runs hot, um, I'm going to recommend the obsidian, um, especially if you're somebody who likes kind of a, one pant to do it all. You want to be able to wear some early season, same pair of pant late season, just because that is merino wool, it regulates temperature, body temperature so well. Um, if you're somebody who is inherently super hard on gear um, and wants to buy one pair of pants and have that pair of pants look the way it did when we took it out of the package for the next 10 to 15 years, I would suggest the corrugate guide pant. So depending on kind of how you hunt um, and what is important to you, um, that's how I would differentiate between those two pants, but it would definitely be one of those two. And then as we go to top layers, um, my favorite base layer piece, uh, for this application is our wick 150 weight hoodie. The reason I like this, and it seems a little counterintuitive, um, because it is full sleeves and a hoodie, but it regulates body temperature so well that even in those higher temps that we see in early elk, it's going to keep you cool. It keeps the sun off you. You get some added concealment um, with that hood when needed. Um, and also some additional sun protection when you're sitting up high uh, glassing and that sun's hitting you, um, whether it be back in the neck or side of the face or whatever. So that's my base layer um, and pants. That's kind of what I'm running, you know, the majority of the time that I'm moving fast. And then in my pack for those hunts, um, you know, or when it gets a little cooler, what I love for a mid-layer is our, my second layer there, is our 250-weight um, hoodie. Um, that's the kiln hoodie. Um, it's a little bit heavier weight merino wool, a great second layer to pair with that wick. 
Um, and then I will always have our Brooks down sweater. So it's an ultra lightweight down jacket um, in my pack. So that's going to be kind of my saving grace when I get super cold mornings or evenings um, or kind of my, you know, safety blanket insulation layer that I don't really have a weight penalty for, but will be in my pack at all times. Okay. Any, any accessories that need to be mentioned? Yeah, for sure. So my favorite, um, I guess, gloves in this scenario, I like to use our, uh, we have an arrow wool, uh, Merino glove. So it's that same 150 weight, um, wool that I spoke, spoke about for our wick layers. It's a great piece, um, just for concealment purposes. So my hands don't get too hot wearing them. Um, but I don't have to worry about swinging my pasty white hands <laughs> around the elk woods. Um, so that's a great accessory I love to have in my pack. Um, typically don't need a ton of insulation that time of year, but the other piece I will carry for when I need a little more insulation on my hands is our Talus fingerless glove. So you can wear that standalone um, if you want a little extra dexterity in your fingers. Um, but I also really like that combination because I will layer the Talus fingerless gloves over my Arrowwell Merino gloves um, when I do need that little bit of extra insulation. Gotcha. All right. Next scenario, maybe we're talking about uh, a backcountry hunt, a little higher elevation, real cold in the mornings, may or may not warm up during the day. But we're talking about uh, something where we're going to be spending a lot of energy. We're going to be getting real hot, hot, climbing up steep terrain. And then we're going to stop and we're going to glass and we're going to get cold. So uh, we still talking early earlier season. Uh, regardless of when it is, okay. more of a temperature type swing thing here. Uh, yeah. Than it is an actual time of year. High country mule yeah. deer. Yeah. Okay. So basically, what I would do is the exact same system that I already mentioned, um, but maybe a few additional pieces. So another piece that I would include um, for my on the bottoms, um, we make a three quarter length um merino wool long john and it seems a little weird if you've never worn them before and i was definitely skeptical before i did but the great thing about a three-quarter length is basically what you're doing is you're not doubling up on an area where your socks are going to be anyways so for those times when it does get a little bit warmer you don't have a ton of double layers um but for the times when it's cooler you do get that extra layer of insulation on your bottom so I love those three quarter length Merino wool long johns um, for that scenario. They also have zero weight penalty. So if you're on a hot day um, or a warmer day, those things can live in your pack and you're not noticing carrying them around. Um, so that's probably the one piece I would add uh, additionally on the bottoms on the tops. What I would do um, in that scenario is I would probably also include our grid fleece. So we have a synthetic grid fleece, um, top it's called the klamath we offer it in a quarter zip which just has a collar as well as a hoodie that's a great synthetic piece um, that works in combination with our merino um, depending on how many layers you need to wear that would be a piece i would add and then even if i am not worried about precipitation in that hunt what i'm going to do is i'm going to add in our vapor uh ultralight rain jacket or waterproof shell and the reason I like that piece, again, it's super light, um, but it pairs really well with that down jacket, the Brooks that I mentioned earlier. So when I put that shell on over the top of my down jacket, um, it's going to help retain a bunch of heat, um, but it's also going to be windproof. So 
if that wind is ripping up top, um, I'm not going to have that wind cutting through any of my other layers. Um, so I'm going to stay quite a bit warmer there. And then in terms of um, on my hands, I mentioned that Brooks down jacket, our, our ultralight down jacket, we make a similar glassing bit, um, similar construction. So it's a down mitt. Um, it has some rubberized texture on the palm as well as the thumb, so you can operate your glass with it. But again, crazy light, crazy packable. Um, you know, when you get up high and your fingers might be getting cold in those morning or evening glassing sessions, it's a great piece to pull out, um, but then can, again, get stowed away in your pack with really no volume or weight penalty um, when you are doing a high output. Okay. All right. Next scenario is the whitetail woods early season. Doesn't matter if you're uh, in the north in, or, you know, you're hunting the south. It's hot. Yep. What are we What are we doing there? There I am going merino wool, um, the obsidian pants on the bottom for two reasons. One, I'm super conscious in the whitetail woods about scent. Um, so I know that that is going to resist um, odor. Um, and they're also dead quiet. So early season, that is my go-to pant for the tree stand. Um, and then in terms of tops, I'm going to be running um, a 150-weight uh, wick layer, whether that be my hoodie or my crew next to skin. Um, and if I need to have a second layer um, for like that last half an hour of light as things start to cool down a little bit, um, I love our Klamath um, grid fleece hoodie to go on top of that. Okay. Uh, now, as it starts to get a little later in the season, let's just say late October, it's not necessarily freezing cold yet, but you know, maybe for a morning hunt, it's going to get cold and then it's going to warm up or it, you know, for an afternoon hunt, it's warm, but then as the night progresses, you're going to need to layer up a little bit more. Yeah. So what you're mentioning is really, uh, kind of my tipping point for where I change. So I would say anything earlier up to the point you're talking about, I'm running our catalyst soft shell system. Um, the great thing about the catalyst soft shell system is it is the quietest whitetail gear that I've worn um, in my entire life. And it wears like iron. So it's super durable yet super quiet. Um, this is a two layer soft shell which means that it's going to breathe really well. So on your walk into the stand in that afternoon that you're talking about when it's a little bit warmer, um, you're not getting fully sweated up before you go sit um, and cool down as the evening progresses. Um, and then as it cools down, basically like just after the point you're talking about, then I would move into our solitude kit. So the difference between the catalyst and the solitude, the catalyst is just that two layer soft shell, um, no added insulation. The solitude is that same dead quiet, um, really, really durable face fabric. But what we've done is we've beefed it up and we've added some insulation as well. So this is like my Super Bowl, my November kit um, is when I get into the solitude. And some great features about the solitude is it has our kit link technology. And what the kit link technology is, um, as you know, especially bow hunting, I hate having anything on my hands. So if I have to wear gloves, you know, the more minimal, the better. Um, I just, I don't like not being able to feel my bow. Um, I don't like to introduce any bow torque. And then also, you know, more importantly, operating my release, I want to have as much dexterity as possible. So what the kit link system does is it's actually a pass-through pocket. Um, in, so you have your regular pocket in the jacket, 
but you also have a secondary pocket that passes all the way through into the inside of the jacket. And this lines up perfectly with a, basically like a kangaroo style pouch that we've built into the bibs. So even when those temps start to drop, you're able to get your hands nice and close to your body um, and keep them warm without having to wear gloves or with being able to wear very minimal gloves. That's a pretty cool idea because I am the type of person who, uh, when it comes to my gloves, I'm always, if I see a, a deer that could potentially be a shooter come through, I'm always taking my gloves off right before I yep. pick my bow up. That's kind of a, that's kind of a neat idea. All right. So the last scenario late season or heck, I mean, this year in the Midwest, I, I hunted in you know, the first two weeks of November in negative 12 degrees. So what are we yep. talking, what are we talking about for extreme cold? Sanctuary. Um, this is a jacket and bib system. Um, and this is designed exactly for what you're describing. Um, when you get, you know, even below twenties, I would say I start to pull out my sanctuary system. Um, but similar to you, I was in Missouri that first week of November this year. And, you know, we were in the negatives every single day. Um, and that's my go-to it's, you know, I have not worn anything warmer than that. Um, I love, you know, I hunt Northern Wisconsin for a uh, rifle season every year and it's typically just is nasty cold. And this is one of my favorite pieces when we got new, new buddies coming into camp or, you know, guys that are willing to, you know, throw away the old carts and try something new. I put them in a sanctuary kit and I love seeing the look on their faces and the conversation after opening morning of I've never been so warm and comfortable my entire life. Um, so that's definitely the, the cold weather kit from first light would be our sanctuary jacket and bibs. Okay. Uh, any other accessories that change once, uh, I mean, cause you guys make socks too, right? Yeah, we do. So I try and keep these conversations as simple as possible just cause there's so much information, but our socks are pretty self-explanatory. Um, we have, um, basically a sock for every pursuit. So from your early season, um, you know, light and fast, you know, typically your, your footwear is a little more minimal. Uh, we make a crew sock. That's great for that. A um, couple of mid season options that increase in weight and um, insulation as you move through the mid season. And then we make a, an ultra um, burly uh, high lofted sock for that. Uh, late those late season pursuits and that's definitely my go-to our our cold weather sock uh, for that late season sit in the whitetail woods gotcha all right so we're running up on time here but i want to ask you a couple more questions and that is you know you guys have introduced this uh some some new stuff from the whitetail line recently what is next what whether that is next year or in the next five years, what is First Light gonna do to not only maybe continue to stay relevant, but continue to grow into um, the the space as a whole, whether that's Whitetail or Western? Yeah, I mean, there's there's not a lot I can tell you that I'll probably lose my job, um, <laughs> but I will say that what you have seen from us so far in terms of our pushing the technological boundaries and gear um, is definitely only the beginning. And that is not just in the Western space. That is not just in the whitetail space. Um, that's across the board there. There are things, you know, that we're working on now, two years out. There's stuff that I was working on a couple of years ago that are a year out that 
is really going to not only change the game for first late, but I think change the game in the hunting space. Um, what you've seen, yeah. I mean, I, th- I think the best way I can say it is what you've seen so far is really just the tip of the iceberg. Um, on our whitetail line specifically, uh, we got a, a bunch of products coming down the pipe. You're going to see a lot more options there. Um, some stuff that I think the most hardcore whitetail hunters in the world have not seen yet is really going to change the way they hunt. Um, and on the Western side, you know, same thing. We've spent a lot of time in the last couple of years really looking at pieces that could be optimized in our current line, as well as holes in that line. Um, that comes from both use case and textiles. So again, without saying too much and losing my job, <laughs> keep your eyes peeled because there is a ton of really exciting stuff coming down the pipe. Well, Greg, man, I really appreciate you uh, hopping on the podcast today and, and talking about First Light. If people are interested in finding more information about First Light, where do we want to send them? Yeah, for sure. So um, I would say best place to start is just www.firstlight.com. Um, that's L-I-T-E.com. Um, but if you're not a big, you know, if you have questions and you're not big, I'm just trying to do research on the web by yourself, I would definitely encourage, you know, give us a call. If you go on the website, the number is right there. I guarantee you're going to talk to a person um, and anybody you get to um, pick up the phone for you is going to be super well-versed in not only company, the company, excuse me, but the gear we offer. So I would say definitely reach out um, via the phone. Um, you can check us out on Instagram if you want to shoot us a message there. We do our best to respond to all those as quickly as possible. But I would say choose whatever means is most comfortable for you and, and hit us up. We're always happy to chat gear, love to swap and hunting stories, um, or helping you out in any way we can. Greg, man, I really appreciate your time today. Good luck this upcoming season, and uh, we'll have to do this again. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, thanks for having me on today. I appreciate it. It was fun, fun catching up and chatting with you. And there you have it. Another episode of the Hunting Gear Podcast is done and over with. Huge shout out to Greg for taking time out of his day to hop on and chit chat with us. Huge shout out to all of you for taking time out of your day to download and listen. Be sure you go to iTunes or wherever you download your podcast, subscribe to the Hunting Gear Podcast, and subscribe to all of the other wonderful content on the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network. Thank you very much for tuning in, and we'll talk to you next week.